this voice, this sweet, pure voice that sounds as if it sprung up from a meadow, who would guess it was the voice of survival? Growing up, Judy Collins was often on the record player in my house. My parents, my sister, my brother and I, we all loved her. A generation crosser, a voice that gave serenity and hope in an era of turmoil and protest. I had no idea back in the 1960s and 70s that Judy Collins suffered from depression and alcoholism, and that over her lifetime, she battled polio, tuberculosis, bulimia, and the death of her son from suicide, as well as injuries to her vocal cords and her hands that could have ended her career. But listen to Judy Collins at 80 years old. This is one of her own compositions, Blizzard, on an album released last year called Winter Stories. One night on the mountain I was headed for Estes When the road turned to ice and it started to snow Put on the chains in a whirl of white powder Halfway up to Burzard near a diner I know And the light burned inside shining down through the snowfall God it was cold and the temperature dropping Judy Collins' voice, like some sort of phoenix, has survived, pristine, just as she has. Judy Collins is on this episode of What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Adame, this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It, it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. <laughs> and then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them. Do you sing every day? Just about, yeah. I sing in front of the piano when I'm working out and writing songs and singing them to see how they go. <laughs> Mary Jordan, correspondent for the Washington Post and interviewer extraordinaire for the Academy of Achievement, talked to Judy Collins just a couple of weeks ago. The doyenne of the folk revival was in her home in New York City. Mary Jordan was in Washington at the Academy's offices. Given COVID precautions, their conversation had to happen virtually, but their connection was real. And now you're 81. Are you at the piano? How long are you at the piano? Well, every day I have to work out, you know, and keep those fingers working and keep the songs coming and then rehearse the ones you wrote. I mean, that's a problem right there. I mean, I just went through a, a series of, I have a whole bunch of new songs that I'm recording on a new album called Beauty and Resistance, which should be out in in 2021 probably by may or something april or may and i have it's all my own songs so i've written a number and i have to practice them every day to get them prepared to be um used you know in my recording sessions but first i have to do all the work at home can we go through a little bit of your daily routine sure let's do that sounds great 
I usually wake up at 7, uh, sometimes 6.45. When I'm on tour, of course, very often I get up at 4 or 5 to catch, get out the door and catch a plane. Um, but, of course, we're not doing that <laughs> since March. We haven't done that. And I get up about 6.30, 7 o'clock. Um, I get on a recovery meeting usually of one kind or another. I read my spiritual books, which consist of reading Thomas Merton and the 365 Tao and Emmett Fox and a few suggestions from Marcus Aurelius. Then I usually do the crossword and have uh, breakfast. Then I usually do a meditation and then a yoga period in the morning. And then I get on the computer and I work on what Julia Cameron calls morning pages, but they're basically it's a journal. And I've kept journals most of my life, most of my adult life. My first journal was at 15. I still have it hanging around somewhere talking about Don, what was his name? Don Hansen, I think was his name, my boyfriend of the time. And I have taken to dictating my journals at this point because I can't read my handwriting, but that's no great loss. Although I did have nice handwriting, so did my mother. And then I do, I try to write a poem or a song every day. Now that sounds kind of obsessive, but out of that usually will come the songs. Well, definitely all the songs that I'm working on right now have come out of my morning uh, poetry or sometimes in the daytime. If I haven't gotten to it by the night, I try to fill it in. The thing is that if you're writing every day something, if I get something in, and I do it in, well, I did a whole year uh, in 2016, I did every day, so I had 365 poems at the end of that year. And the last day of the year, I wrote what I think is probably the best song I've ever written, Next to the Blizzard, which is called Dreamers, about immigration. My name, it is Maria. My daughter is a dreamer She says that she is worried That she will have to leave When I was only 20 I crossed the burning border I came to find a good life and brought my daughter here When I came to America I hoped life would be better for me and for my daughter And here I worked for you I harvested the peaches in Northern California And then in Colorado, my family and me This land was made by dreamers and children of those dreamers We came here for democracy and hope Now all we have is hope 
remember, Judy Collins had only walked us through her morning routine before we took a moment for this song. Then after lunch, I usually work on the piano for a couple of hours. It really takes a couple of hours a day, pretty much average, to keep things moving and also to practice the guitar. To everything turn, turn, turn There is a season turn, turn, turn And a time for every most amazing things about you, and I think it's endlessly fascinating to those of us who can't sing, is that singers and songwriters somehow find each other and hang out with each other. And when I was reading your autobiography, it was quite incredible. I mean, you were with Dylan and Leonard Cohen and Joni Mitchell. Can you recreate that New York in the 60s when you were all hanging out together, what was that like? Well, there were clusters at certain times. Certainly Newport was something around which we hung out together. That, I would say that's probably the only place that we really hung out together unless we were going to a bar somewhere. Uh, but the synchronicity of what happened, and it always happened, it it's usually a surprise, which is always wonderful. We, I moved into the village in 1963. One of the things that I did was to get straight into therapy because I was very, very depressed. And of course, I was already drinking like a fish. And I talked to him at length about everything, including my suicide attempt at 14, which I was really trying to subsume and get through even though I was still drinking and um, he's the, one of the first things we did was that he taught me how to make and continue contact with friends and it was an essential lesson I mean this was the kind of the cement of my whole adult life because I make the calls if somebody doesn't call me I make the calls friendship is part of the magic of life. If you're not learning from and listening to other people on a, on, a, on a continuity basis, you're missing what it's all about. The communication between people, whether they lived in a cave or, or a penthouse or on the street, is really the fundamental core of civilization. We talk to each other, we tell each other stories, we cement relationships, we have grounding, we remember what somebody said last week or last year, last month. We keep track of one another's love affairs and flings and errors. One of your great friends was Leonard Cohen. Yes, one of my great friends. And of course that started out because I was already, in 1966, I had already I'd landed in the village. I was making my, I made my third and fourth and fifth and sixth his album, the album that Suzanne was on was the sixth, so I was working on my sixth album. But I, always ha I already had a core of friendships here, including Mary Martin, who was his friend, that I hung out with in the village. There was a gang of us, including Lily Tomlin and Jane Wagner and my friend Linda. 
we bonded and we made sure that we had dinners together. There's a picture of us together in an apartment downtown. There was Leonard, there was Joan Baez, there was uh, me, there was my friend Linda. But Leonard Cohen was not well known at all. No, nobody knew him. Mary and I were good friends and Mary went to McGill with Leonard and had known him, had grown up in the rather shishi and wealthy part of Montreal. And Mary kept talking about Leonard. She said, oh, we love him, he's so bright, but he's just going nowhere because he writes these poems and he gets them published and we go to read them and they're really, they're so obscure. So this was her complaint about Leonard's lack of success in life and he really, she really didn't think much of his possibilities. And then she called me in 66 and she said, I have a surprise for you. Leonard wants to come and sing sing you his songs. <clears throat> and I said, well, are they obscure? And she said, oh, yes, of course. And he came to see me, and he knocked on the door, and I let him in. I was living on West 79th Street. And uh, he came in, and, you know, he was so handsome and so charming. He was quite dazzling. And he came in, and we just talked all afternoon. And then we went out to dinner at Tony's. The steakhouse on West 79th, which is now gone, of course. And we talked some more. And at the end of the evening, we were leaving the restaurant, and I said, Leonard, Mary told me that you have some songs. And he said, okay, I'll come back tomorrow. So he came back, and he said, well, you know, I can't play the guitar, I can't sing, and I don't know if this is a song. And then he sang me Suzanne and Dress Rehearsal Rag and a song called The Stranger Song. And I said, I just gasped. I said, well, these are songs. And I'm going to record Suzanne and Dress Rehearsal Rag tomorrow or the next day. So there you go. Suzanne takes you down to a place by the river. You can hear the boats go by. You can spend the night and you know that she's half crazy and that's why you want to be there and she feeds you tea and oranges that come all the way from china and just when you want to tell her that you have no love to give her she gets you on her When you heard Suzanne, how did it strike you? How did you know that was a song for you? I was raised in a musical family where my father was a singer, performer, wonderful singer, and had a radio show for 30 years. And my father had the knack of always choosing the right song. These They would send him all these shows from Broadway, and he would listen to the show, and then he would pick out the song, the best song in the show. And I had been doing this always from the time that I discovered folk music, but also when I learned the songs of Rodgers and Hart and then played the music of Mozart and Chopin and <laughs> Rachmaninoff. I know 
when I hear a song, whether it's for me or not. I know it in the instant that it is presented to me. And that also happened with Send in the Clowns? Oh, yes. It happens with any song that I take on. It is a chemical, spiritual, and intellectual, everything combined response. And I depend on it. I don't analyze. I don't sit down and say, okay, you know, how about this lyric? Is it good? Is it bad? I just know. And by the way, if I don't like it, I never want to hear it again. <laughs> Isn't it rich? Are we a pair? Me here at last on the ground, you in midair. Where are the clouds? Isn't it bliss? Don't you approve? One who keeps tearing around, one who can't move. Where are the clouds? There are two think the the takeaway or the story is I mean I, I know people move to tears about it um, and yet I ask people well what does that mean and they don't really know what is it what does it mean it doesn't mean anything in particular it's a great song uh, what what makes a great song I don't know I can't tell you people can analyze that up the wazoo but it's how you make how it makes you feel um, what it brings out in you. Everybody has that moment where, God, it's enough. It's enough already. Um, and sending the clowns, of course, I mean, it has a visceral meaning because it's, you know, what they said when somebody was bombing on the stage. <laughs> it said, in the clowns. They'll bring down the house. Um, so, so if somebody was on stage um, and it was really going horribly, um, they used to literally, literally send in clowns. That's right. Send in the clowns. Don't bother. They're here. I mean, do you listen like maybe to a hundred songs, and it's only it's only one song that will kind of really hit you in the heart or the gut? Absolutely, and they come in different ways. The first two songs that turned me on to folk music, I heard on a Saturday morning in Denver, Colorado, when I was 15 and a half, on the radio. What were they? Uh, they were the Gypsy Rover and uh, Barbara Allen. And Barbara Allen was sung by Joe Stafford. And the Gypsy Rover was from a movie score from an Alan Ladd movie called The Bold Night, which came out in 1954 maybe 53 and they came on one week one came on and the next week the other and I said that's for me in both cases was in the merry month of May when all the
What was it about those songs? The stories. But doesn't it have to match your voice and your talent? Well, you see, that's all automatic. That all is a, a, a visceral lesson which has been learned in my childhood, from childhood on. You forget that I was trained. I started playing the piano at four and a half. I listened to my father's radio show and his warming up and his practicing, and I listened to his process and I watched his discipline. And about music, you know, I mean, I had to practice two hours a day from the age of, certainly at the age of 10, because I was playing Mozart with the orchestra by the age of 13 with my teacher, with her orchestra in Denver. Were you aware just how talented you were? I mean, you were a prodigy. Well, I might have been a prodigy, but the, the, the truth was I, I was well-trained. And I had the talent. You know, my father recognized it, my mother recognized it, and they, first they took me to dance class, <laughs> that didn't work. And so then they took me to the piano teacher and that worked. And I was attracted, I was passionate, I was disciplined, I was devoted. I fell in love with songs. It's, that was my go-to place. I fell in love with songs, I learned them, um, I, gathered from 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 the first time of hearing the gypsy rover and barbara allen i began to discover where i wanted to be which was with the folklore center in denver colorado and going up to lookout mountain and hearing all the singers sing their songs and learning songs and buying records and listening to all the listening to the clancy brothers and all the english and irish and scottish ballads and ewan mccall and peggy seeger and the weavers, and, you know, I just soaked it up. Your father's father came from Ireland? Yes, they were the Irish, but they came in very early. They came in in the 1740s, my genealogist has told me. And my sister always says, oh, I know all that. <laughs> but you have a, your music, you sing a lot of Irish songs. and Oh, yes. Um, is there a big Irish influence, do you think, on you? Absolutely. And my father was so mad about also being half, half English. He hated the English. And he sang all the Irish. He, he sang, I'm sure that I was kind of prepared to hear those two songs because I probably heard Danny Boy in the womb. Oh, Danny Boy, oh, Danny Boy, I love you. Let's talk about your father. How do you think his being blind from a young age affected him? Well, he was more perceptive and more intelligent than most people. And they, he went blind at four and his brother went blind later, but they were in school together. They were at the same school for the deaf, dumb, and the blind in Gooding, Idaho. And I got letters from his teachers in the early 60s when I was kind of hitting the the high spots and you know on in the newspapers and so on and and these women were in their 80s probably were 90 but they would write me letters about how extraordinary he was to teach 
and how extraordinary it was to be raised with him. You know, he was also an alcoholic, and of course that brought his brought trouble down on him. And of course, alcoholics always affect their families. But generally speaking, he was also a periodic, which saved us from a daily <laughs> infection of his uh, Jekyll Hyde personality when he was drinking. But he didn't drink all the time, thank God. And he read like a maniac, and he read out loud to us. And he educated himself. He was always looking. He was always learning. A disciplinarian, and he really expected the best out of us. That's all. How did you? How did you know that your father expected the best from you? Because he told us. <laughs> you know, he didn't take almost as an answer. He liked to see wonderful grades. He loved to see progress. He loved to see professionalism in me. He loved what I was doing, and he was a passionate fan of what I was doing, which is incredible because when I tried to kill myself, he wrote me this letter, and basically he said, you can't do this. You cannot. You have a talent, and you have to respect it, and you can't start taking pills and trying to kill yourself. There's no there's no excuse for it, basically. So you, when you took 150 aspirin and, 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 almost, and tried to kill yourself, how old were you? How old was I? I was 14. And why, I mean, I think you've written that you were so anxious and you weren't prepared for some performance. What, what do you think was going on. Tell us about what led you to do something so drastic and dangerous. You know, I am today, and have been for many years, I'm a very calm person. I take things as they come. I'm very, I'm altruistic, I'm stoic. I mean, I might have an outburst from time to time, but nothing like a breakdown and nothing like, pure, I don't, I'm not afraid of performing, I don't get the shakes, I don't, however, the other day, I was preparing for a Zoom that I did for the University of New Mexico, and I was doing songs that I know very well. I was doing The Blizzard and Since You've Asked and My Father. I know them very well, but, and also a new song, a brand new song called Arizona. But I was petrified for about a week. I was in a state of complete anxiety because... I, I have learned over the course of my career to always have lyrics in front of me. I learned, Billy Joel told me years ago, he said, you have to have lyrics. You cannot perform without lyrics because you will forget lyrics and it's not fair to your audience to drop them off or forget them. So I couldn't, and I knew that I might have that happen on camera. And so I, you see, when you're on Zoom, as you know, you're sitting with a computer in front of you. Well, where are you going to put the lyrics to your songs? And it reminded me of the way I felt when I was 14. I was furious at my father, first of all. But the main thing was... But wait a second. What's the worst that would have happened? You, you'd drop a few lines. I mean, why, did, why were you so upset that you wanted to kill yourself? Because I knew... I was working on a song by, by, um, called La Campanella. It's one of the most difficult piano... It's Liszt, L-I-Z-S-T. You know it's List. Yes. It was a list composition. It was a train wreck of a piece. Even when you knew it and when you can play it, it's horrible. I had it up to speed, but it was not. I had it memorized and up to speed, but it was not ready. 
Now, this is somebody who memorized the, the, the Mozart piano concerto and played it with Rico's orchestra, and I didn't have any problems, but it, it was because I knew it inside out, backwards and forwards, but it wasn't the case with La Campanella, and I knew that I could not perform it in public. So I have that gear in me that says, basically, you have to be rehearsed, you have to know it cold, and don't go out without knowing it cold. It sounds like you're a perfectionist. <laughs> I would say so. <laughs> well, has it happened that you've ever forgotten lines on stage? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're still performing, uh, I mean, pre-COVID, you, you know, and at the age of 80, how many concerts did you do? About 120 a year, that's my norm. I mean, that's pretty darn good. So, so, but when you're on stage, like, I mean, you can't keep the lyrics in front of you, can you? Oh, yeah, I can. How do you do it? There's a, well, I have a stand, and it's in front of the microphone, and I can turn the pages and so on. I don't always refer to it, but it's there. You know, Russell, my wonderful musical director, he used to say, when you drop a line, you make it up and it always rhymes. <laughs> so I'm, I guess I'm ready to take on a drop in a lyric in some subliminal way. But anyway, it is a sign of perfectionism. It's probably helped me in my life. Uh, but I don't, uh, I don't usually sweat over it like I used to, like I did when I was 13, 14. Toes and flows of angel hair And ice cream castles in the air And feathered canyons everywhere I've looked at clouds that way But now they only block the sun They rain and snow on through a lot um, and had to deal with a lot yourself from polio, tuberculosis, bulimia, depression, alcoholism, and of course the suicide of your son that you've written and spoken so eloquently about. Do, do you think seeing your father who is blind do so, keep going when he, he was down. I mean, did somehow that help you get through all this? Oh yeah, he was an optimist. He was always looking for the better view, <laughs> so to speak. My sister and I were talking about it lately and she said, you know, he always woke up smiling. He was, no matter how much he drank the night before, it didn't matter, he was always, and he was always on time. He always got to the shows. That's also where I learned about the discipline that it takes especially if you're a working alcoholic, which I was until 1978 when I got sober. So I, I, I'm sure that all of that was learning and watching him, watching what he did and how he got through his issues. I think it, it impressed all of us. I think we're survivors and we're also optimists. You mentioned at the top that you have a call on recovery. 
Is there something uh, that you do every day? How do you channel the best of you and kind of box up the baggage? Well, first of all, I don't think anything succeeds like the 12 steps in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the golden rule, the golden mean. That works. And it works all over the world. It's the most extraordinary program there is. So there you go. I mean, I can't go any, I can't say any more about it except that I, I got in and I've never gotten out and I wouldn't do without it for the world and it's why I'm here. I owe everything to, 12, to uh, AA, everything. And why, why is it that so many artists struggle with alcoholism or drug addiction? I don't think it's artists. I think it's 10% of the world at large. But artists, because they're, they live large, always, <laughs> always talk about it or announce it or die from it or run into a car that they're not driving. You know, artists are always out there. But most of the world, it's a 10% deal. 10% of us are alcoholics and addicts across the board. It doesn't matter what profession right. you have and that's what's so brilliantly evident in AA you go you're going to be in with in that in that room or those rooms with people you'd never associate with all kinds of people from every walk of life every color every gender every description I mean you know that's how it works I was really struck by this incredible story that you told in your book about Janis Joplin coming up to you and whispering something in your ear. Yeah. What did she say to you? Well, we were at the tr we were at the Troubadour watching um, uh, Polly Williams sing a set, and we were with um, Janice's road manager, who's an old friend of mine, John Cook, Alistair Cook's son, actually. And we were sitting there, and it was a gang of people, and I was sitting with Janice. I didn't know Janice well at all. And she leaned over to me after one of the songs and she said, and I didn't know if she knew anything about my drinking. I was well into my, deep, deeply into my alcoholism. And of course I could control it, quotes unquotes. And I, by that time I did not drink when I worked, so I just made up for it every night. Or if I had day off, of course I would drink. And she was very public about her use, about you know the southern southern comfort and the drugs. And uh, she said to me, "One of us is going to make it, and it's not going to be me." Never forget it. Wow! How haunting! How haunting is that? Yes, indeed. And she actually died two years after that in her twenties. Yes, she did. And John, my friend, who was her road manager, found her awful, awful thing to have to do. She was 27, and when she died, what a loss. Did that make you stop drinking? No, 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 no. Nothing would stop me <laughs> drinking. <laughs> but something did, so what ultimately did? Well, I was dying. <laughs> How bad? How bad was it? It was terrible. I couldn't work. I couldn't sing. I had lost my, my, I'd had a problem with my vocal cord. 
And uh, I actually had a surgery. I was still drinking when the surgery happened in 77. All of 77, I was canceling shows. Uh, I had a whole about 45 shows that I canceled that year. You know, that'll do in your career, really, <laughs> with, a, with a slam dunk. But um, I had the surgery for the, the vocal cord. It was a hemangioma um, capillary on vocal cord that had broken. And I had that in uh, October of 77. And it was successful. It's the same surgery that Julie, Julie Andrews had, but her doctor wasn't as smart as mine. Do you think it was meant to be that you could sing again? Because you've, you sang for a half a century, you're still singing, and it's a half a century later. Were you just lucky? Well, I had a lot of things going for me. I had a brilliant doctor, and he said to me, if you don't have this, you won't, you won't be able to sing. That's all there is to it. If you do have it, there's a chance. So take the chance and have it. So we did it, you know, and he was, he was brilliant. Uh, Don Wiseman saved my career. I mean, no question about it. And was it meant? Huh, I don't know, a lot of people don't have similar, a lot of people who should have survived don't. Um, but I'm lucky in many ways. Um, you know, many of the pianists that I know over the years have had problems with, with one of their hands, usually it's the left for some reason, with arthritis. And when I had this two years ago, three years ago, when I had a, a tendon in my little finger, my right little finger split, I was in the shower and it popped. And of course I had to have the surgery. And if, you, if you're an artist, they'll do this particularly difficult surgery. They take part of the tendon from the index finger because there are two tendons in the in index finger and they, 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 they file the wrist bone down because when it breaks, it's like rope running over a stone until it splits, and uh, it's a big deal. But I'm playing like the wind. Good times and bum times, I've seen them all in my dear. I'm still here. Plush velvet sometimes, sometimes just pretzels and beer. But I'm here. I've stuffed the dailies in my shoes, strummed ukuleles, sung the blues, seen all my dreams disappear, but I'm here. When um, you were in the village in the 60s, there's a great story that you told about listening to Bob Dylan write Tambourine Man. Uh, I was actually at a party. I had, I had been friends with Al Grossman for a few years because I knew him from Chicago when he ran the, he owned the village, the, um, the Gate of Horn in Chicago, where I worked a lot. And he called me one day, and it was in 1963, and he had already, you know, when, when Dylan started writing those incredible songs, he, uh, Grossman got interested and Dylan sent him a tape and then, and then Grossman called me and he said, I'm sending you a tape of this guy, Bob Dylan. I said, no, it is. He said, well, I want you to listen to it because I'm playing it for all the labels and they, don't, they say he can't sing. <laughs> and I said, I said to Grossman, who cares? <laughs> 
And uh, so he and I were friendly. So he called me up and said, do you want to come to my house for a party? It was 63 in October. And I said, sure. I went up there and we had a great time. And there was a lot of, uh, I suppose, a lot of drinking, maybe a lot of drugs. I don't know, because I didn't take drugs mainly. I mean, I took uppers and downers, but I didn't, they, to sleep and to wake up. But I, I didn't take any kind of heavy duty drugs. Um, LSD a couple times, but n none of the rest of the stuff. And because uh, I really think, thought that they would interfere with my drinking. And so I went to the party. It was great. And then I went to sleep upstairs on the third floor of this little mansion that he had. And I was probably pretty drunk. But I woke up about three in the morning. I heard this voice coming up the stairs. And of course it was Dylan and I heard the voice and I got out of bed and found my way downstairs where he was sitting alone in a room with the door shut and I sat in front of that door for about two hours and just listened to him write and sing Tambourine Man. Now the reason, again, that song just grabbed you, you knew it was one that would last? Oh yeah. I knew it, and I was singing it pretty quickly. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. I'm not sleepy, and there ain't no place I'm going to. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. In the jingle jangle morning, I'll come following you. Another thing that happened to you in the 60s is that you sang for JFK before um, he was assassinated while president. Can you tell us what was that like to sing for the president? It was amazing. And I was still in the hospital in Denver. For tuberculosis. Yeah. And they gave me a pass. I'd already had October, November, December, January, February. I'd already had five months in treatment, and they were pretty positive that I was negative, if you know what I mean. And so they gave me permission to fly to Washington from Denver, and I arrived in a snowstorm and went to the Shoreham Hotel, which was because Harold Leventhal had put this together. Pete Seeger was, was he? Anyway. Um, Josh White was on that show, the Clancy brothers were on that program, and afterwards we got to meet President JFK, and his brother was there too. It was extraordinary, <laughs> just extraordinary. Unbelievably powerful presence. And then, of course, um, another president and his wife, Bill and Hillary oh. Clinton, <laughs> were, were walking uh, in New York and heard your song, Chelsea Morning, 
and named their only child after your song that you sang. Woke up, it was a Chelsea morning, and the first thing that I saw was a sun through yellow curtains and a rainbow on my wall. Blue, red, green, and gold to welcome you. Crimson crystal beads to Put on the day there's a sun show every second. When you were speaking with the Clintons, um, what did they say to you? The first time I met them was uh, a friend of mine who's a writer here in New York, wonderful, uh, uh, Letty Pogerman and her husband. Letty called me one day in. in 90, God, 91. And she said, I'm going to be up at the Chautauqua talking about children. She said, Hillary Clinton's going to be up there and her husband, Bill Clinton, and Bill's probably going to be the next president. So I didn't really hear that part. I heard Letty's going to be there. Letty and Bert are going to be there. So it gives me a chance to see them. I said, I hope you'll come back afterwards. And she said, of course. So she came back afterwards, and she had Bill and Hillary with her. And she, we met, and she said, hi, this is Bill, and so on. And he told me about how he had first seen me in um, Washington at the Shadows and how exciting it was. He'd seen me in 64, I think. And so I thought that was so nice, and I smiled. But I didn't get it. I didn't get Little Rock. I didn't really know that he was I didn't know anything. And of course, he wanted to go out and party. And I was about ready to go to bed. I never party after a show. I mean, once upon a time I did it, but not in sobriety. And uh, <laughs> so then that was 91. So 92 came around, and in the spring my brother called me and he said, I hope you have a new dress. And I said, why? And he said, because Bill Clinton says that if, I think it was in Rolling Stone maybe, there was an article, when they asked him what record he would save, if his house was on fire, he said, oh, Judy Collins, uh, Colors of the Day. And then he named all the songs. And uh, so I said, well, that's wonderful. And then, well, he called me and said, would you sing at my inauguration? And I said, of course I would. And it was there that I got to, to spend more time with both of them. Did they tell you the story? Oh, yes, of, they did. About Chelsea Morning? Absolutely. And, of course, it's a Joni Mitchell song, and so what I always say is they, they tell Joni Mitchell the same thing because they're diplomats. You know, I mean, they have to say something to her about the song. <laughs> but you performed at the Clinton inaugural, and you slept in the Lincoln bedroom. Isn't that right? I did. I'll tell you a funny story about it. I always carried my coffee and my grinder and my beans and my coffee maker on the road. So I got into the Lincoln bedroom and I was in the bathroom getting all the paraphernalia together and I got all the coffee ground and, and the whole thing fell on the floor. So I spent the night cleaning up coffee grounds in the Lincoln bedroom. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And actually when I called the operator and said, do you have any coffee? And they brought me up this pot of glorious coffee. It was much more even delicious than the coffee I was making. And the next morning, we got. he came to my door and he said, you want to go for a run? 
And I said, great, I put on my running clothes and we ran around the, uh, we ran to the Lincoln Monument and we went up the stairs and we stood in front of the second inaugural, which is printed on the wall there. And he read it, we read it together. I mean, that, that had to be a pretty good day. It was a good day. We talked about how lucky we were to live in this country and how he was going to make some wonderful changes. And I just had complete faith in Bill Clinton. I mean, he does that to you, you know. He talks to you like he's known you all his life. There's a man by my side walking There's a voice within me talking there's a word that needs to say, carry it on, carry it on, carry it on, carry it on. They will tell their lying stories, send their dogs to bite our been connected to so many political causes. You've been an advocate for all kinds of things against guns and landmines and you've been talking about the rights of dreamers, the immigrants who, the babies of immigrants who are born in this country. Um, do you think music has, still has an impact on politics in the way it did in the 60s? I mean, I think the, there was this real feeling that music could change the world. Uh, people like you and Dylan and Baez, uh, I mean, it was so tied to politics. Well, first of all, music is art. It's one of the art forms. It's one of the muses. And art keeps us on the planet whether it's poetry, music, singing, songs, painting, drawing, tapestry, all of the arts keep us on the planet. So if you don't have art in your life, if you don't have music in your life, you're missing out. And your thinking and your imagination are missing out. Now, I know that when people come to concerts to hear me sing, they have a transformation because they're listening to, it's not that they're always listening to uh, who knows where the time goes or we shall overcome. It's that they're listening to music. They're listening to art. I'm not a musicologist. I don't, but all I know is that beauty and storytelling are the secret. What I'll give you since you've up there singing away I'm dreaming I'm having 
images come into my mind and memories. And that's happening to my audience, which is quite an amazing thing, really, that, you know, people are in their own worlds and they're sort of letting whatever it's happening roll over them. And I think that time when they're sitting there and they can't, they can clap after the song, but they, they're quiet, they're listening, they're absorbing. And I think those are the moments in which people make decisions, big decisions about their lives. They're psychic moments with art. It's true with all the arts, not only music, and not only, quote, protest songs. They have to have the element. It's very hard to write a song which is going to last. I mean, This Land is Your Land is a very unusual piece. But Woody Guthrie wrote all kinds of pieces, of course. And he very often wrote about issues. But on the other hand, he wrote about other things, all kinds of other things. So that's the balance, is that you must be in touch with the way the universe works. That was such a great description of the audience because, for instance, uh, I mean, I know people that tear up when they've heard you sing Send in the Clowns. And it, and, and it means something different to the person in one row. Yeah the person behind, but can you feel that on stage? Oh yes, because the, 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 the power of, of the um, group conscience comes over to you. It really does, and you feel it. It's mysterious, I think, is the word, but it's definitely there, it's definitely a power, and you definitely feel it. The feeling runs both ways. We have been soaking in Judy Collins' power and spirit for 60 years now, and she shows no sign of stopping. Judy Collins spoke to the Washington Post's Mary Jordan for the Academy of Achievement in November of 2020. I'm Alice Winkler, and this is What It Takes. Plush velvet sometimes, sometimes just pretzels and beer, but I'm here. I've run the gamut podcast is made possible with generous funding from the Catherine B. Reynolds Foundation. Thanks to them, and thanks to you, as always, for listening. We hope your holidays are happy and healthy and are filled with an abundance of soul-soothing music.